welcome to episode 120 of Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera. On the show this week, Mark returns and hopefully so does stable recording sessions. Assassin's Creed takes a breather, all the plagiarism you can shake a stick at, and in our book club, brace for the sound of Mark's pants flying off, it's The Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask. Let's start the show. episode 120 from linkedcast.eu available on all your favorite podcasting platforms apple Podcasts, soundcloud podcast addict or stitcher i'm your party host dave ryan and on the line with me now the returning conquering hero of the great white north covered in the pelts of moose and polar bear and, and anything you might expect up from that wild tundra it's the wild child <laughs> it's the wild child mark <laughs> robinson uh i think i still know how to do this we'll, we'll see how it goes uh yeah I, I i didn't go that far north black bears and grizzly bears sure um the polar bears no not quite uh how was it did you encounter landstorm um and and did you try to bring him into a library unfortunately i was only in calgary for about two hours and this was at half 12 at night so i did not see landstorm i did not see bret hart um no, 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 no real kind of wrestling related events other than my friend who I've, uh, one of the reasons I went to Canada was to go and see a friend who moved to Vancouver, um, which I didn't realize was actually about eight years ago. Uh, it doesn't seem as long as that. And, um, we ended up watching the New Japan G1 finals and I think I may have turned, turned him on to, to New Japan um so you know or just turned on in general because we was watching yeah. omega and abushi and you know indeed they are handsy men so but, uh, how, how was your trip on the whole canada is a, a a wonderful country to certainly like on the west coast to just not on specifically the coast but just the west uh like there's the pretty infamous rocky mountain drive between banff and jasper which is about four hours of mountains and lakes and forests in some form and fashion and even if you're not like the best of a camera it's pretty difficult to not get a half decent instagram picture out of it uh just like just a really smooth drive um yeah, just one of the, the the best things I've done was that that particular drive, and like they know exactly what they've got because literally every ten minutes, uh, the road will expand and you'll have like a little layby you can go in and you get out and just take some pictures because you just want to do that constantly. Um, and we had a, a perfect day with blue skies and everything, so uh, that drive was wonderful. Um, I did whitewater rapids in uh, melted glacier water, so jumping into rivers that were about 4 degrees Celsius, uh, which is good fun, I can tell you. Uh, Toronto is mad and crazy, and just like any other kind of big metropolis, uh, Vancouver was like that, but a little bit more chilled out, but also a lot more crazy, because... They had a mental asylum about 80 years ago, which they just went, now nah, we're done with this, and just turn them all onto the streets, which you do notice. Um, and when you have to go get the 
uh, tram or the underground subway uh, about five o'clock in the morning. It's it's an interesting fifteen minute walk, um, but sitting by the beach and having fried chicken was also quite nice. Uh, yeah, like it's just you know we we try to do a lot in two weeks, uh, and even still, you know you you don't even do half the stuff that you want to do. Um, yeah. and Niagara Falls is weird because Niagara Falls itself is amazing but you take a two minute walk up the road and there's basically a theme park just just lumped onto the side of it like bolted on uh, which is a bit weird um, but you know I guess that's tourism for you so Canada was good I'm very tired I <laughs> had a massive anxiety attack so still kind of reeling from that but I'm alive so I'll take that as a plus yeah um, how are you technical difficulties aside yeah yeah i don't want to get into all that again <laughs> we kind of talked about it last week on the show but yeah a couple of weeks of absolute nightmare recordings um had a good week this week though um i don't know if i was talking to you about it. i got away for a night down down south down to cork where a lot of my family is from uh went down to uh it's a town called fermoy so on the old road from dublin to cork mark um fermoy would be the second last town before you hit cork city center okay it kind of goes fermoy mallow and then you're in cork so we weren't quite in cork city uh we're only there for the one night staying in this kind of really nice um we got it at the last minute there was a last minute cancellation on uh on 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 the booking.com uh, and we we took the room and it was quite for what it was it was quite reasonably priced and it's by far like the fanciest hotel room i've ever stayed in like there was a full fireplace Ooh. in it the the walls were rounded it was like the the side of the building it was rounded there was like it was the the bathroom was so large that it was six full stride steps from the door to the actual toilet in it i did count <laughs> That the bath had jacuzzi jets in it. It was a legit four-poster bed situation going on. So, like, I was completely out of my depth in terms of fanciness. Uh, and when they asked us, they were like, oh, it gets quite busy here at night. Like, it's well-known for its food. Do you want to have uh, your food in the restaurant or at the kind of... We serve pretty much the same menu uh, in the bar. We were like, yeah, the bar. <laughs> because this is definitely, like, one of those you-need-to-know-which-fork-is-which sort of classy right, establishments. Right, right. Um, was, um, when you say so like the location were you in is it like uh, if you were to pick Cork as a destination to fly to from Ryanair is it that kind of Cork um, it would be it would be to like Cork City what like satellite towns like Nace and Newbridge would be except it's much kind of prettier and more rural um, <laughs> I, I mean compared to Newbridge yes yeah I, like I'd yeah like, like Newbridge is proper like a town town whereas uh, for Moy it's like a, a kind of small rural town when, like smallish when you were trying to sell me the idea of moving to Newbridge uh, one word you didn't use to describe it was scenic yeah yeah like everything further south is scenic like you just drive for about 90 seconds south of Newbridge and you're on the car and it's lovely but the town itself is proper just like just a town sure but anyway um, so we were in this place the, the main reason was because it was like equidistant between uh, two places we wanted to go just to kind of like uh, for something a bit different to do and one of them was Fota Island the big zoo down in Cork uh, out on its own island which is less like each individual animal is caged up uh, or in an closure with its own kind like in dublin zoo and more like all the animals that won't murder each other are allowed roam around vast spaces with each other i'm sure emma was delighted with this 
Oh, absolutely. And well, so was I. I love Photo Island. Like, I've been going there since I was a kid. Um, although, as I said to her, it wasn't nearly as fun and relaxing as the time when I was a teenager and I just broke my leg and my little cousin had to push me around in a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I was doing my full Dr. Strangelove impression going around the whole place. But anyway, um, we went there and then also to the, the Irish Donkey Sanctuary. Because as a little kind of stocking filler present, I had gotten uh, Emma for Christmas. I'd adopted a donkey for her. Uh, and that place is down in a town called Liss Carroll in County Cork. You're a man of romance, let me tell you. I know, but like, you know, she, she loves animals. Yeah, and, no, like, it, was, it was It was something different, you know. Um, and we went there. It was actually, it was surprisingly great. Like there was a full kind of like uh, visitor's guide. There was a whole huge walk you could do around the, the sanctuary. There was a surprising... Even for a donkey sanctuary, there was a surprising amount of donkeys there and they were all really nice and you could like uh, pet them and you could donate food to them and everything. And yeah, a grand time was had. But let me tell you about the dinner I had there, Mark. That's what you're here for. <laughs> that is all I'm ever here for. I know you, my friend. I went into this bar and I was like, OK, what what's here? What's the meat option? Usually, if I'm unsure when it's a fancy place, I'll default to steak because how can you fuck up a steak even if you're like one of these real pretentious places? So I was eyeing up the steak. And then I saw this, and I'd never had it before in my life. Feather blade beef. Okay, never heard of that. It's a, I had to Google it because I was like, oh, what the fuck is this? You know, you know when you see something, and it's like, is this is this just a place that has airs about itself, and it's just like naming shit? Uh, so I looked up feather blade beef, and apparently, like, it's a really difficult cut of meat to do. Um, really precise. Um, really tender, and this was like braised and marinated over a course of like twelve hours. I, it might be the single finest cut of beef I've ever enjoyed in my life. Mark, the tenderness of this, you could talk it onto the fork. <laughs> That's how tender it was. I didn't even pick up my knife the entire time I ate it. It was ridiculous. Um, oh, my God. The, yeah, the food, I'm still thinking about it. It was like two days ago. I'm still thinking about it. Um, and then the, the other thing I did, moving on from Featherblade beef, even though I don't really want to, um, I went to a wrestling show last weekend. Uh, OTT had their big WrestleRama 2 that they've been building to for quite a while out on the... You haven't been to the arena on the Shore Road before, have you? I the, have not, the new, no. You've, the new you've, place. You've discussed it with me, but I've not been yet. Yeah, so they ran once in February for a show called Homecoming. They were supposed to run the month the snow came. They were going to do Outer Space Odyssey yes. there. Is that where they're running uh, October the 13th? No, they're doing the National Stadium for that for oh, okay. obvious reasons, for as, obvious we'll, reasons. as we'll probably sure. mention at the end. But um, this, so this was their second proper time there. It's about, so if the Tivoli is about 500 people, this is about 800, 900 people. Really good atmosphere. It's a large GAA hall, so it's all flat seating, but there's not enough rows that you'd be far. Like, so you know when you're in the York Hall uh, for RevPro, if you're really far back, you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, like I can't see shit all. Um because people are standing up and stuff like that and it's all flat uh but here there's not enough rows for that to really be a concern um and this show was all built around uh jordan devlin versus walter but start to finish mark now you know the the pro wrestling i watch which is quite a bit correct yes yes and you know some of the sh you've been with me to some of the amazing shows that i have been to i've also been to some of the worst shows with you yeah mark not only might this have been the best show start to finish I have ever been at in person. I am going out on a limb here and saying Jordan Devlin versus Walter is the single 
greatest match I have ever seen in person. That's a lofty claim. Uh, the atmosphere was fucking molten from start to finish on that show. I showed, uh, I was was standing between our friends Johnny and Lee, um, and they showed the hype package that's been kind of like going viral on wrestling Twitter. And like when they showed it live and the reactions to it, like by the end, I legitimately had goosebumps. Um, And when the two of them got into the ring, it was just, it was unbelievable. The match was perfect. The whole match up, up and down. Now you're going to think I'm a crazy person, but on on this show, uh, Tomohiro Ishii wrestled Juice Robinson. And having watched it now since I had done a preview show with uh, our friend Alan over on uh, the PW Torch, and uh, we were talking about the two of them had, had just had a G1 match that, that people were raving about. This match was better. And Is it because you saw it live? Well, I thought so, but then I waited until other people said, because I am not by any means an authority on Japanese wrestling, and it was pretty much the consensus that it was better. Um, Juice Robinson was doing some shoot headbutts on the top rope in this match. They were not taking it easy. Um, yeah, the whole match up and down was, or the whole show up and down was great. Got to see uh, Kushida wrestle Shane Strickland, which was fucking just, ah, oh, just great. Um, yeah, uh, it's gone up tonight on OTT on demand. So anybody who's into wrestling, anybody who's into, um. Walter should definitely check it out. Uh, it, it was fucking amazing. And then, yeah, you're going to come with us uh, to the September show or the October show uh, featuring a mate of yours, Tetsuya Naito. Yeah, I might see him. That'd be a thing I haven't done before. Yeah, t- just we won't be talking about wrestling for ages here. We'll move on quite shortly. But it just kind of breaks my heart now that all four of them are coming over. So clearly in a better version of reality, we would have had Hiromu Takahashi as well, who is the one I I haven't seen live out of uh, LIJ. But what can you do? <laughs> <sighs> um, yeah. Also, the one other thing I forgot from the, the Canada trip, uh, just to bring it back to me. Um, so you remember... <laughs> When your, I, fa- your favorite pastime. Yeah, remember when uh, I first came to to visit you and you took me on the now fabled look what you did, look what you did, or look what you done tour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good times, great memories. Yeah. Also, my nan's coming over next month, so I might have to get you to help out with that. Cool. Um Well, we did a, a five-hour whale tour around uh, the coast of Vancouver and out a little bit further. Actually, went into. Uh, waters of the waters of the united states uh, and literally for five hours we got a don't ever fucking eat salmon again tour because you're killing the whales tour uh and i felt kind of like a way in a way like i did when you took me on that original tour of just wow i'm the worst person ever and i don't even fucking eat salmon but i legit legit felt responsible for the death of of whales up and down the the west coast of canada yeah but you know what you, you bake some salmon, put a bit of garlic butter on top. <laughs> Sorry, whales. <laughs> uh, and she was like, yeah, like if, if you're here for the for a few days, if you go into any restaurants and you ask for salmon, you know, just make sure you ask where it's come where it comes from. And if they don't know, then walk out. OK, well, I mean, I wasn't going to order the salmon anyway, but I'll keep that in mind. Imagine what imagine what someone just working in a restaurant with no context would think if you asked where the salmon came from, they didn't know and you just stormed off in a huff. 
I mean, I... What what kind of fucking Tory fucker? I know, right? But, like, I would... If if I was working in a restaurant and someone said that to me, my brain would immediately just go to the sea. And, Mm. you know, that I'm fired. Um, But, yeah, that was... It was a magical day where we did get to see many uh, whales and a humpback whale. But at the same time, I was just like, all right, I get it. Like, the, the whales are sad and we need to feed them salmon. I get that. But... I'm not to blame here. Please don't take this out on me. Anyway, games? Yeah, I think so. Playing this week. Sure. Mark, you've been traveling, but have you been playing? Uh, So I didn't take my Switch with me. Um, Traitor. Well, I just, I did not have time to be playing Switch. Um, I did take my tablet with me, so I was playing a little bit of Football Manager, and I was playing a little bit of a game called uh, free ways which I've spoken about before on this uh, show but what I started playing before I left and what I've been playing since I got back is a little game called Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze yeah buddy which is a game that I never actually got around to uh, originally on the Wii U um, but obviously did it know. did it come out while you were in china or was it just you were busy um when the fuck did it originally come out we 2014 no i was i i, I had a, a, a wii u at this point i'm pretty sure mm. uh, just it wasn't a game that i ever got around to, to playing um which is surprising because i like platform games i like the original donkey kong country um but just just didn't happen and, uh, you know what, you'll be surprised to know that I like Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm about two and a bit islands in, and, uh, you know, in terms of being a Donkey Kong game, it doesn't add anything, like, new, really. Um, you know, you play as Donkey Kong, and you can use one of several side characters as additional health plus whatever uh, mechanic that they have whether it's like extra uh, distance when you're uh, jumping or uh, Cranky Kong has like the kind of pogo stick sort of downward strike that will also block you from spikes and stuff Um, so I mean I tend to uh, stick with Dixie Kong because she gives you like a little bit of extra elevation like Tails yeah um and it controls, you know, pretty much the same way as, as like, those kind of classic Donkey Kong games. But what I like about it, and what a, a certain amount of um, kind of either HD remasters of classic platform games or just, like, just kind of new takes on classic platform games is a lot of them don't retain the feeling of those. Um, and... I mean, Donkey Kong feels a little bit different to a lot of kind of classic platform games anyway, but it does retain most of how that feels in the way that uh, Donkey Kong moves and his kind of jumping abilities and and the kind of weight of the character. It it retains all of that really well. Um, And it also does uh, an excellent job in terms of uh, level design and just, you know, getting from one side to the other. Uh, with the obstacles that you come across and the, the kind of classic level design trope, which is, all right, we start with a core idea and then we kind of expand on that idea throughout the the course of a level. And mm. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. Um, it does the same stuff. It has, like, you know, spell out, get the letters for the word Kong. Um, there are the puzzle pieces that you have to find. And, 
you know, one of my favourite things that I always look for in a any kind of game um, is if you're going to give me exploration, make it worth my time. And that, that is one of the things about Donkey Kong. There are just tons and tons of secrets throughout all of the levels and, um, you know, you never kind of want to speed through them. You want to take your time. You want to just check every part of the the course or the level, whatever you want to call it, uh, to, to find everything there. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I'm only two levels in, but it can definitely tell the difficulty ramps up just in terms of trying to find everything, let alone, and then, you know, trying to do the levels as well. Yeah, I, I think it's like, it's one of those that strides the line perfectly between, it's like, it's just enough of the Donkey Kong Country games that we remember fondly from the SNES, uh, but it's just enough of a new twist on things, um, that keeps you interested you know like um kind of like you're alluding to there like if you have these kind of um like ukulele for example the spiritual successor to banjo kazooie its greatest crime is that it was too much like banjo kazooie that it was just like i i just go back and play banjo kazooie it's a better version of this exact same thing um whereas this kind of like attempts to kind of move things forward while keeping the familiar things that that you really enjoy about the franchise and one of the things i really love about it and not to dredge up a, a game of the year debate uh from giant bomb a few years ago but i love the soundtrack on that game i haven't actually been listening to the soundtrack all that much um it's it's too easy of a game to just kind of put to the side the soundtrack and just listen to podcasts and mm. stuff yeah um but I do remember that conversation, so maybe Indeed. I should actually give it a proper listen. Yeah, um, and it, it's yet another game that is just perfect on Switch, and I'm glad it got off the, the Wii U, uh, because it was a game that even for the Wii U, because it, it got dumped out in like January or December, it was like right after Christmas, and completely missed everybody. Um, so I'm really glad it's getting another life on, on Nintendo Switch, because that is a great console. Yeah, and um, oh god damn, I had another point, but it's gone. So we'll probably uh, sorry, 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 no, uh, that was actually it. Um, I really like as well that you know the first time you do the the first boss fight, and my brain is just conditioned to okay, it's a Nintendo boss fight. It's going to be three hits and we're done. And then yeah. after the third hit, I'm like, huh, this fucking thing that, is still going. How do I jump on this fucker's head? Is your your automatic? <laughs> like... it, it is that, and it's like we'll do this three times and it'll be done, but. Um, I can tell just even with the first two boss fights that uh, if they pick up in difficulty, that there actually might be like an actual bit of genuine challenge with the bosses. So yeah. that uh, that has me excited. Yeah, not to spoil it, but I do think yeah that game gets like there, there's some surface level like it it's quite easy and gentle at the start unless you're looking to do absolutely everything in every level. Um, but yeah, I do think the challenge ramps up quite nicely, as all those uh, Donkey Kong Country games do. I don't think it gets quite to the insane level of difficulty as a couple of levels um, that give people sleepless nights still from the original series. But uh, yeah, I think you'll be pretty happy with it by the end. I'm interested to see if you uh, proceed through to the end what you think about it. I'm sure I will let you know. Um, <clears throat> a trio of games I want to kind of briefly talk about here, uh, and the first I think is the uh, the Mark Robinsonist game that I will also get into this year, uh, and that's Dead Cells. I've heard a lot about this game. I had every time I was going on Twitter while I was away, um, 
there was a collection of people talking with great uh, f- just fever and yeah. passion about Dead Cells. So by all means, yeah. sell me Th- on it. This is a game that has like it has captured the imagination of and like I get on well with these two particular friends of the show, but I will say for what we want from a like a, a game we'll play obsessively, I think we're three very different people. The fact that it's captured my imagination, Barry's imagination, and Sean McGee's imagination, like that all three of us have separately fallen in love with the game for different reasons, um, I think really speaks to just the quality and the depth of what's available in Dead Cells. Like, on the face of it, the thing that gets me into it is that it's a very well-made Metroidvania game. Um, There's a lot of exploration involved. Um, What gets the likes of um, Barry into it seems to be the idea of, like, doing the perfect run or doing the quick run because the, the whole thing is you die once in Dead Cells and you go back to the very beginning. You are reset to the very start and the the levels are kind of randomized every time you come through it so you can't just do the same path every single time uh which adds one layer of difficulty uh you can like uh, if you start accomplishing things very quickly you can go through there are like there seem to be like shortcuts that you can use if you have gotten to the shortcut within a certain amount of time but because the shortcuts as well as everything else move around that is not a fucking guarantee um the different loadouts you can get by exploring. There are some kind of upgrades that you will keep in between deaths. Um, and there are a lot that you won't, that you'll just have to find again. But like the idea of kind of building your perfect loadout based on what you find, like you could be somebody who prefers to have a shield to repel attacks or somebody who prefers to have some sort of arrow, uh, bow and arrow situation to do more rangy stuff. Or you might want to get real up close and personal with, with some sort of sword or there's projectiles. And, and as you get on and find some of the tougher enemies that will pursue you aggressively, uh, you can get traps and things like that, that will keep the enemies in place. That can be very useful. Um, the game really like the, the colors, the, the color scheme of the game, like it pops really well off the screen. Uh, I really like playing it on my TV uh, with my pro controller. I think when you're trying to get around quickly and hit your, the, the, I think one of the sweetest dodge rolls I've experienced in, in a game in a long time. It's just a really satisfying get you out of danger dodge roll. Uh, when you're whipping around those maps, I think it's nice to have it on a big screen uh, and be experiencing it that way. But it's also a really, really good game for handheld. Again, we'll hit on that perfect for Switch, this game. Um, I fucking love this game. I haven't come close to beating it, but it's one of those ones where you can be back in the thick of the action so fucking quickly that it doesn't matter how much you suck. You you do a little bit better every time. It's very achievable to do slightly better on each and every run. And even if you get really far, there's always a better way to do it. Um, whether you want to like do it quickly or do it well and exploring and, and finding a load of secrets and stuff like that. And in between every level, you, you like you'll get a chance to refill your health, buy some upgrades based on the cells that you have um, captured so far. Like if you manage to make it all the way to the end of the, the level without dying, you can use your cells to start buying upgrades and like, Say, for example, Mark, I get a run where I get nine cells in the first level. I can spend those, say there's something that requires 25. I can spend those nine now. And even if I die, 
I will have already made that progress on trying to unlock that thing. I just need to make sure that I, I spend all of my, my cells or my souls, I can't remember which it is, in between levels um, and not kind of like um, lose them in the process. Because you, if you die, you lose all the ones since the last time you spent any. Um, yeah, it's just a really Moorish, repetitive in the best possible way game that you actually just want to get up and start a fresh run. Um <laughs> Yeah, I really, really like this game. Um, it, it is a very Mark Robinson game. It's worth checking out, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, you didn't really have to say much more than it's a very Mark Robinson game. Um, how does, like, is it kind of combat-focused, fo- combat platform-focused? Yeah, there's there's a lot of combat. There's some clever platforming things, both in terms of um, how you traverse the, the levels how you can use the the different paths to try and maybe uh, it might be a wiser choice based on your health bar or based on how close you think you are to the end to avoid combat and go a more circuitous route. Um, it, that There's kind of some of that cost-benefit analysis going on if you're moving quickly. But certainly combat is um, a, a, a principal mechanic in this game, we'll say. Um, and it's just, it feels really smooth, really quick. Um, each different variation of enemy and as you move deeper into the game there becomes like tougher versions of those same enemies but after you've encountered a bunch of them for a while like it will introduce one type of enemy to you when you start playing and you get through just enough of them to have worked out what their attack pattern is and how you can work with it then it will introduce a second type and then the deeper you get into the level you'll find kind of segments that have a bunch of different ones they all behave differently so you have to kind of tactically think to yourself well will i throw a throw a trap stop that guy dead in the space um and deal with him in a while or will i kill this one really quickly and then go for the big dude or what will i do um there's boss battles as well i don't want to spoil anything about those because i think you're going to enjoy them um yeah it's just it, it it's fabulous but uh, again like you like you say the, the 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 combat is definitely a big thing in it because a lot of the upgrades you can get uh, and a lot of the upgrades you can keep all involve uh, kind of upgrading your combat and things like that. But the, that's not to say that the platforming element to it uh, isn't fun on the exploration either. Um, what else do I have here? Yeah, so <laughs> this is this is a funny one, Mark. So um, there's a podcast out there. Uh, I don't know if you ever listened to it called Retronauts. Um, uh, sounds familiar. I've never listened to it. So it's like a longer form version of what we do with the book club where they'll take like a concept or a video game or a series or, or something like that and they'll do like um, like an hour, an hour and a half on it. And it's um, Jeremy Parrish, formerly of uh, IGN and 1UP, and Bob Mackey, who's I think most famously known at this point for the Talking Simpsons podcast, but he's been doing Retronauts much longer and he was a former uh, 1UP alum as well. It's usually them, sometimes a special guest. Um, they did one on the Bioshock series frequent, uh, recently, and it got me thinking again. Now they were they fell down the 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 kind of the lines I would expect them to that a lot of people do is that they kind of um, they love Bioshock one. They didn't really talk much about Bioshock two. They do think some aspects of it are underrated, and then they they kind of weren't wild on Bioshock Infinite. But it seemed like a lot of that in their podcast was down to just they don't really like Ken Levine the person, <laughs> and the uh, the always very online man he has become in the years since Bioshock Infinite came out is a bit grating, and I I completely completely get that. Um, but that kind of 
uh, provoked me to to get back into Bioshock. And over the last week and a half, I both finished Bioshock Infinite on the the HD collection, getting myself the second platinum I've gotten for that game. Um, I got it on the PS3 originally, and now the the trophies don't stack, so I got a platinum separately for the PS4 edition of it. Um, and then I played start to finish over the last four or five days uh, the original Bioshock. Um, I, I gotta say, what they've done with that HD collection of Bioshock, it, it they've really prettied it up. Because if you remember, Mark, the the PS3 version of the original Bioshock was a fucking mess. I played the Xbox uh, 360 version, uh, so... Yeah, it was a, a jittery, sputtery, glitchy mess. The it was just chugging like a motherfucker. Um, it, Dave, if there's a like a PS3 and an Xbox 360 version of a game, there's a good chance I probably played the 360 version. Yeah, 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 and and that was like one of the principal reasons why this was like because that game came out what oh seven oh eight, so that this would be one of the early examples of that kind of thing happening. Um, but yeah, they've done a really good, put a really nice sheen on it. Like it doesn't, you know, there's that sort of way that last gen games handle that, you know, it's just an HD version of a previous gen game. So like, it's not like you'd be tricked into thinking this is a brand new PlayStation 4 game. Sure. But what they've done with it is, is pretty damn good. Uh, I really enjoy that every level of the game has its own um, director's commentary. In, the, in this HD collection so if you find it it's actually like not a thing where you can you don't put on the director's commentary you have to go find it as an additional MacGuffin in, in each level just a film reel and you can either stop the level right there where you are just hit a button and it will uh, it's a different it's Jeff Keighley sitting down with Ken Levine and one of the lead designers on Bioshock and they're just talking about each one isn't necessarily about the level but it's about um, just a different concept in Bioshock. Those are really cool. Um, I still like. I haven't. I haven't, and I probably never will change my opinion on. I, I think that game goes on entirely too long. I, I think its dramatic peak is uh, the the would you kindly, and I think almost everything that happens after that is unnecessary um because it's kind of just like a lot of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth i think the the stuff with tenenbaum is really good but there's no reason that couldn't have happened before um and then the boss battle is absolute piss it's a really bad end to that game um but that said it's still a magnificent piece of storytelling rapture is still just completely fascinating and uh, just so such a, a thoroughly realized uh, version of the world that is just so much fun to explore um i enjoyed now that i i've played through bioshock infinite and the buried the burial at sea or buried at sea dlc that ties together the whole bioshock universe i've enjoyed now having already played that and going back to some of the stuff that's in that that is referenced in the the buried at sea stuff it's it's really good like it, it does feel even more now like it's all tied together in a neat little package and i would urge people to go back because it, it really is a masterpiece of a level um if, if you don't want to play it uh, a guy you often pimp on the show mark um mark brown did a great game makers toolkit on the uh the one level fork frolic the the sander cohen level uh, you know where Sander Cohen, the kind of performative, uh, crazy person, gets oh, yeah, you to, yeah. to hunt. 
he gets you to hunt down across his kind of level. He gets you to hunt down four of his former protégés, murder them, take a photo with them, and put them on this really creepy shrine. Yeah, I remember Mark Brown's video about that as well. Yeah. Yep. It's just it's a masterpiece of a level from start to finish. It's the best part. It's the best part of the whole game, um, in terms of gameplay, uh, and in terms of creating an atmosphere. Um, it, it's it's really good to play. And funnily enough, right? So I was trying to chase down all the weapon upgrades in this because there's a trophy for getting all the weapon upgrades and uh, apparently the very last weapon upgrade you can't get if you've killed sander cohen because if you don't kill sander cohen you run into him much later on in the game in his own apartment um and not only was it news to me that there was a way to get into sander cohen's apartment and run into him it was news to me that you didn't have to kill Sander Cohen because every time I've gotten to that point in the game and he shows up, I just launch a fucking grenade at him out of panic. <laughs> so I was, I was, it fucking blew my mind that I didn't have to kill Sander Cohen and I was fucking pissed that I couldn't get that last upgrade. Um, but yeah, Bioshock, still still a whopper game. Um, absolutely love it. Um, if it's on sale at some point, that HD collection, there's so much game in that HD collection that it's really well worth it. Um, the one very last thing I want to talk about, Mark, before we move on to the news. I played Doom in 4K last night. How was that? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, like, we were talking... I mean, I, I can imagine how it is. Oh, like, I, this is the thing. Like, I'm not a big... Was it, Were we talking about this off-air or on-air? I can't remember already. Uh, the resolution thing. I I'm think not, it was off-air. Yeah, I'm not a big, like, I don't notice the difference between, like, different frame... I'm not digital foundry, like, I don't notice subtle differences in frame rates. I don't notice subtle differences in resolution. I have a 4K TV. I have a PS4 Pro. The PS4 Pro was an incidental thing because my PS4 was breaking down. So, like, it was kind of a... Uh, I, might, I may as well while I'm replacing it. It wasn't an intentional upgrade. And the 4K TV was just kind of a treat yourself thing because I just constructed an office for myself. Um, and I don't tend to notice how much prettier games are until the odd time I have to go back uh, and like play it in standard def or whatever. But <laughs> I put on I put on Doom because uh, I was like, I just fancy like a podcast, like something that I can put on a podcast and just ramble around uh, just shooting stuff mindlessly. I'm getting a bit sick of it's that point right before the new FIFA comes out where I'm sick of the old one. Um, so I was like, I'll, I'll reinstall Doom. I booted up Doom, and it was like, oh, there's a 4K patch. I was like, oh, hello. Mark, the the eye-searing beauty uh, of Doom in 4K is something to behold. You're, you're popping over uh, all going well over the weekend for a little while um, to hang out, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit you in front of Doom in 4K, my friend. I would be happy to sit down with a cup of tea and play Doom in 4K. My, my giddy aunt like not only <laughs> not not only does it look beautiful not only is it super fucking intense but it feels like it moves even fucking quicker <laughs> you know do you know it, what considering my current anxiety issues i'm not entirely sure that's a good thing for me yeah maybe you should watch it from like behind a bed sheet while i play it or, or something just make like sure that. i'm at the point where there's the super shotgun then i'll be fine yeah indeed um yeah, it's it's like the first time I've had a proper like I've played like um, The Witcher with the 4K patch looks looks pretty and stuff like that. But it's the first time where I, I've played something in 4K and proper just had my breath taken away by it. I just needed to mention that, get it off my chest to somebody. No, I'm I'm glad. And um, 
Yeah, I, like you, have never been um, a real stick stickler for, like, resolution and 4K. Um, yeah. I just want the fucking game to play and be good. Yeah, exactly. Now, with that said, sure, there are certain games and there's certain experiences where I would be curious to see what 4K does to that experience. And considering the way that Doom moves and plays and feels already... We're just playing it, you know, as the as the normal version. Um, I yeah, I can I can see where playing it in four K adds a whole another layer to it. So I'm looking forward to Sunday. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, shall we move on now to the news? Oh, we'll go then. News. News on the mark. Mark, you you might well know that I am excited for Resident Evil 2, the remake that's coming uh, early next year. Well, I, 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 I know you're a fan of Resident Evil. Uh, oh, this this yes. is a thing that we've discussed before. Yeah, I I watched the, the clips of... Uh, they got two new trailers, or one new trailer out, I think, and then there was already the one with Leon before. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, you, <laughs> it's a remastered version of Resident Evil 2, and it looks pretty fucking spectacular yeah so like i i think genuinely resident evil 7 was one of the best games of it was last year wasn't it that it came out uh, it was like yeah january 2017 wasn't it yeah like it was top three in my list most of the year and it may have finished in my personal top three as well like i knew it was i got to win game of the year um no, especially the year as, Cuphead. As, come on now the year of Cuphead and the year of cowards on the panel who wouldn't play horror games. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the best horror games in years. Uh, the be- By far the best Resident Evil game in many, many years. And, and as soon as I saw footage of Resident Evil 2 um, at E3 and not only were they remaking it, like it wasn't like previous remakes in the series where they just put a bit of, like spit a bit of polish on it and shove it out onto a new platform. Um this time they were just remaking the entire game in the Resi 7 engine, which is just a fucking, oh, like a really, really good game engine. I fucking loved uh, how Resident Evil 7, Resident Evil 7 looked and handled. Um, I've, I've had this game just pinned to the calendar, ready for it. And yeah, the, the Leon Kennedy trailer got the appetite whetted, but this bit, getting to see Claire Redfield, um, getting to see the just the uh, this horrible mutant zombie. Oh, it, yeah, it just looks great. It looks like everything I want from uh, a remake of Resi 2. And um, they really would have to just send this thing on fire off a cliff for me to hate it at this point i'm i'm so sold and i mean as well there's the fact that like in terms of playing uh an old game you know the mechanics of it it's it's going to be using what pretty much looks like the the you know resident evil 4 and onwards style of gameplay so that's going to add a whole new layer to it as well yeah that that's for sure um, and I think that's the way going forward um, that's that's better for we're kind of sick. The last generation and the start of this one, we were just completely, completely drowned 
uh, by remakes, and they were just straight remakes with with nothing, maybe like a the DLC included. I think this is the way to go for like the PS1, PS2 generation of games. Like if you're gonna remake it, do a proper fucking job. Get in there, rebuild the thing. Don't just shit out a port again. Um, uh, that said, though, don't do the kind of fucking HD remake job that Konami do on on Silent Hill games and get rid of all the fog, thus killing the fucking atmosphere in the greatest horror game ever made. But anyway, <laughs> before I get annoyed about that, let's <laughs> let's just leave that aside for this week. I, I think. Um, moving over to Ubisoft, Mark and Assassin's Creed. I think we were. Would you say that we were both like reasonably surprised that? after they got universal praise for taking a couple of years off and coming out with um, Assassin's Creed Origins, which a lot of people really like, myself included, that they they just came straight back again one year later with Odyssey. It was a little surprising, wasn't um, it? Only depend, depending on if they felt that coming out of Origins that they had a, enough like ideas and concepts that they thought, okay... We've got a whole bunch of new stuff here because of this time, this extra time we've had off that we can get a game out next year. Because it mm. is quite possible um, when you have that extra additional time that you know <laughs> there is stuff that's left to the side. Could, are, are you possibly baiting the hook for a game we're discussing very later on in the program? Uh, I, you know what, I wasn't, but now you mention it, um, <laughs> so I'm not as surprised. Kind of coming back to it and thinking about it, but. This is probably confirmation that they're like, okay, we're now uh, out of ideas and probably need that extra time off for whatever we come up with next. I don't know where they go to next. Uh, what other um, kind of great periods of history that we have to work with? Well, they've done French Revolution. The 80s. Um, yeah, they've done French Revolution, American uh, War of Independence. They've done Ancient Greece, Ancient Rome. They've done ancient Egypt. They've done uh, Victorian London. They've done. Oh, I know a lot of people want one set in the Far East. That's that sounds like a, a reasonable uh, assumption. I think one of those, oh, one of those side games, touched on that. But I, I like. I'm not a huge follower of the Assassin's Creed series. Um. I think one set around like the the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia would be interesting. Um, I, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, God, I do not want them to set uh, one around revolutionary Ireland because God, all fucking mighty, <laughs> the the bevy of accents we'll get from both American and French actors trying to do Irish accents in that it just is already making me terrified. Um, now you've said it, I I kind of want it in the worst way. Yeah, I, I could see them going like way back doing like ancient South and Central American civilization ones. They've already done the pirate one. Um, yeah, it's just like they, they're going to run out of shit very soon. And, and, you know, like there's like one big red button of like a completely like 100% modern Assassin's Creed game. I don't know who the fuck wants it, but like obviously with all the Abstergo stuff that they tease in those games the logical end point is to do one set in the period of time where they're using the animus. Um, but I, like, I guess there are, there must surely be hardcore Assassin's Creed fans who actually enjoy that shit. I am not one. Well, I mean, they still have, like, the, the big other red button, which is to retcon the series. Yeah. 
and just get Michael Fassbender in to do mocap. That sounds awful. Mm-hmm. Indeed, my friend. But yeah, uh, so the reason we're talking about all this is that they're going to take a year off in 2019. Uh, and I think that's only fair. I really think this should be an every two years game. Um, they, it will sell like gangbusters if it comes out every two years. I, I think maybe like if you're concerned about getting a, something with Assassin's Creed out every single fiscal year, I think maybe the way to do it is say this game comes out in 2019. Or sorry, 2020 will be the next one. This game comes out in 2020. Maybe you do the large story expansion for that game in 2021, and then you don't have a new full game until 2022. Well, I also that... wonder if they're thinking about um, like the next-gen console. Uh, yeah, I, I think after E3, I think a lot of people, if they weren't already, are scrambling to start getting their engines uh, and stuff ready for uh, next-gen R&D. Yeah, so, I mean... You know, who knows what will come out in 2020, but uh, if you're looking for a, like a decent launch day title or thereabouts, you probably couldn't go wrong with Assassin's Creed. Indeed. Um, interesting news, positive news coming out of Telltale. We haven't done that so in a the, while. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so the, the final season of uh, Telltale's Walking Dead is launching around now. Um... Uh, but in tandem with that, we are getting the complete first season launching on Switch October 28th. Um, all episodes in one bundle and the the first DLC, uh, Walking Dead 400 Days. Uh, seasons 2 and 3 will be coming at a later date. Uh, I'm hearing great things about the final season of Walking Dead, Mark. Uh, <clears throat> among which is that technically it works which is the most surprising part of it. Like, I don't think, <laughs> I, I, for the most part, I, I don't think people would doubt the writing chops of the people who do Walking Dead. I know the the, the kind of seasons in between the first and last have, you know, uh, a lot of people kind of, you know, there's ups and downs, shall we say. But uh, I think people will agree that it's probably the most consistently well-written. And, and a lot of the, the Telltale Games Fair is very, very well-written. Um, the stuff I've enjoyed uh, to a fault is, is is all very well written. Um, but yeah, these are perfect games for Nintendo Switch. Um, and it's good to see one more third party games come to Switch and two, a, a studio with a hell of a lot of creative potential maybe starting to find its feet again. Possibly. I, I kind of feel a little bit more cynical about this release um, in that Considering the news we've had about Telltale and layoffs and yeah. and certain struggles that, you know, this would seem, I would say, like a relatively easy port to do from the PS4 and the Xbox huh. One version you, of the Switch. You say that. I say I, this. I played, uh, I say Walking this. Dead season, I, I, I played Walking Dead Season 1 on my Vita and it was trash. I say this, obviously, but, you know, if it comes out and it works fine, um... That, that's a, a new source of revenue um, that kind of sounds like they need. So uh, I still celebrate games coming to Switch, um, third party, but yeah, I feel a little bit more cynical about this one than some of the others. Mm. Indeed. And, you know, in fairness, like it's not like they haven't given you reason to be cynical. No, in the past. no. Um, speaking of uh, ports coming to Nintendo Switch, one of the most ridiculous games I've ever played in my life. Saints Row the Third. So I, I never played Saints Row the Third. Um, I remember hearing that it was like 
oh, okay, so Saints Row tried to be this GTA clone, and then at some point, some point just went, oh, you know what, let's just go fucking mad. Yeah. Um, from, like, Saints Row 1 was the one that was pretty much, like, st- like po-faced and trying really hard to be um, GTA. But I think... Saints Row 2, I remember getting Saints Row 2 after I, I told friends of mine that I was disappointed in GTA 4 and said, like, this is like GTA when it was fun. And, and it was, and it was weird, and it was self-aware, and it was mental and off the wall. And I got to say, a, a pair of games, another case of, like, they had enough assets and stuff left over that 3 and 4, Saints Row 3 and 4, came out relatively close together, I think about a year or so. Um. Saints Row 3 is really strange, really fun. And and then by the time it gets to the, the story gets to Saints Row 4, it is completely like Saints Row 4 is set inside a Matrix style simulation. Um and I'm not I'm not even kidding about that. Um but Saints Row 3 is the kind of the link between where it gets completely completely off the wall insane um and the the more kind of straightforward sandbox gta kind of games i think people who haven't picked it up before if it works hopefully it does uh on nintendo switch uh, i think this will be one well worth picking up i had a fucking blast playing that game back in the day yeah i it might be a thing that i'll i'll pick up um i imagine i hope that it'll come well no it'll be a switch release so it'll probably be like 40 quid yeah, I I would imagine that's that 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 seems like a healthy enough price point, thirty five, forty quid. Um, here's a game that like I went away for so long, I just assumed it came out. Um, Koji Igarashi's spiritual successor for Castlevania, um, Bloodstained: Ritual of the Night, has been delayed into twenty nineteen, and the Vita version is completely cancelled, which does not shock me. Um, this was a game, just to remind you, um, from this Eurogamer article that's uh, had a Kickstarter that secured $5.5 million of funding, and that was three years ago. Um, it, it never set a specific launch date, but had launch windows, and that has shifted several times. It was supposed to arrive uh, over a year ago, um, was supposed to arrive this year, and now is delayed into 2019. Um, you you like a bit of Castlevania from time to time, Mark. Has Bloodstained ever really been on your radar? Um, I'm assuming the delay isn't really a surprise to you, though. No, it's been on my radar, but usually it's come in the form of, hey, this game has been delayed by another year. Uh, mm. I, you know, we always need a few games that are in development hell, so... And this is, this is kind of one of the notable ones at the moment, um, due to the fact of its uh, origins... <clears throat> And money that it financed through Kickstarter, uh, but yeah, let's that's going from like 2015 to now. Uh, what was it? 2019 has been delayed to, uh, and yeah, I <laughs> I don't think it comes as a surprise uh, to anyone that the uh, Vita version has been launched, um, especially considering that you know it's coming out on Switch. So uh, you know, I'm I I didn't back it, so I'm not gonna be angry about it. Um, they're being open and honest, and uh, Igarashi seems to be genuine with like just please, you know, just kind of hold out for us. You know, we uh, there was the the beta back a demo, um, and clearly they got feedback which they took on board with um, certain issues around just the quality of, of the product. And 
uh, we've always said if you need to delay something, if you need to have that time to put out better better product, I'm always going to go for that over rushing out something that's half baked. Yeah, if it means you don't end up being mighty number nine, take all the time you need. Uh, <laughs> I I think it's actually difficult to try and be that bad. Mm-hmm. They sure did manage it though that uh-huh. one time. Um. Moving on to the distinctly Mark Robinson, Jack Lazell portion of the evening here. Uh, Trials Rising has its release date and details for its beta. Uh, It's going to launch on February 12, 2019. Uh, We're also going to have a closed beta starting in September, presumably for people who have pre-ordered the game digitally. Uh, Mark, there was a new trailer as well accompanying it at Gamescom this week. Uh... This presumably is your first buy of 2019. Uh, Possibly. (laughs) Uh I don't know what else will be coming out uh, between at that time, but yeah, um, I probably... Uh, You're not not buying The Division 2, which is also around the same time. No, and also, because I didn't get... I think it was Trials Fusion was the last one. Um, And I was a little bit burnt out on Trials by that point, so I feel I've had enough time away where... Uh, a return to trials is is a thing that I can get on board with. So yeah, well, if February twelfth, well, there, there might be there'll probably be some indie games out um, in January. But yeah, I'm I'm all on board with more trials. Uh, a recent book club feature here, a link to the cast. Indeed. Um, this is an interesting one. Dying Light, one of my favorite I, games. I, I of... picked this one just for you because I wanted yeah. to. I wanted to hear what you thought about this. I had not fucking heard anything about this. Um. Dying Light, one of my my favorite kind of like horror zombie survival style games uh, of the last God knows how many years. It came out two or three years ago now. Real sleeper hit when it came out. uh, Dark Horse for Game of the Year uh, 2015 or 2016, whichever year it was. Um, Is getting a standalone Battle Royale game. I'm just going to read this because this is bizarre. Uh, Standalone Battle Royale spinoff Dying Light Bad Blood will arrive on Steam early access in September. Early access will be for PC players only, but Bad Blood will get a multi-platform PC and console game upon full release. The 1999 Founders Pack provides in-game currency and exclusive items, including the Founders Pass that will deliver three legendary skins throughout three months uh, following early access launch, it says. Um, This is, like, I don't like the whole everybody trying to cash in on battle royale modes i don't like this idea of exclusive skins and in-game currency and things like that that creeps me out uh like this this week i was kind of perturbed by the news from friend of the show matt niner who spotted that onrush is getting uh microtransactions now the way the the store works on onrush there's nothing on there that will give you a competitive advantage so that is about at the fucking limit that I have with microtransactions. Once it doesn't completely throw the game out of balance competitively based on who spends the most on it, I can at least just ignore it and keep it in the background because I don't care about skins or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, Mark, even though I don't like this kind of game, I, I don't, I'm a bit skeevy about what they're doing about it. I also acknowledge the reality of Battle Royale is the cash cow at the moment. Uh, I'm looking at how huge and how expensive Dying Light 2 is looking from the the footage we've seen. And I I see this as a... This is them putting out something in the meantime because there is a Dying Light community out there. 
something to maybe appease to them, but definitely to try and cash in and fund finishing that game. So, like, whatever. Uh, like, I really wish these, um, pre- like, these kind of um, loot boxy, microtransaction-y games didn't fucking exist, and I really wish games I didn't like, I-, I did like, weren't tarnished by having one of these. But it's completely separate from Dying Light, the original game, which I love. It's completely separate from the sequel. That would have completely killed me dead, Mark. I would have been so fucking bummed out if this news story was that Dying Light 2 was a Battle Royale game. I'd be like, fuck you. Uh, And as well as that, by the time fucking Dying Light 2 comes out, you can bet your bottom dollar that the fucking... The, the gold rush on Battle Royale modes will have fucking dried out. Um, So it would have been very, very silly. Uh, yeah, to have done I, that. this seems like a good way to go to make this a, a standalone, uh, separate thing. Um, yeah. You know, just kind of dip your f- feet in the water and see how it goes. So, yeah. the, and the combat is really fun in that game and really visceral. Um, you should check out because um, I've done co-op and multiplayer on the original Dying Light, which is random people online a couple of times, and it is a lot of fun. Uh, you should check out videos on YouTube. So if it is like a one-to-one recreation of that that feeling and that combat, and they keep in like all the parkour cool stuff, I could see it being one of the better battle royale clones. That doesn't mean I have any fucking interest in it. Well, I mean, I, I, does it come as a surprise? No, not even remotely. No, so. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, here's an interesting one, and one of uh, Mark's faves being talked about here. Monument Valley is going to be a film of sorts, according to Eurogamer. The beautiful and very successful mobile series Monument Valley is going to be turned into a movie of sorts, and excitingly, Patrick Osborne is at the helm. Osborne won an Oscar for the short film Feast, a heart-swelling six-minute story about a stray dog and the man who takes him, takes him in. That sounds very, very sad. Mm-hmm. Soon the dog shares a fatty delights the man's uh, bachelor diet, blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, long story short, uh, it's going to be a live action animated hybrid uh, Monument Valley family franchise, whatever the hell that means. Uh, Deadline has labeled it a film, uh, but this article seems to doubt that it would be a proper, like, massive uh, theatrical release kind of film. Um, is this something as a Monument Valley enthusiast that is interesting to you at all or uh, or what is your take on it as the monument valley fan of the two of us i mean it's not um the sonic the hedgehog live action film um which i say is a good thing funnily enough no i i think it's cool um i i love the the style and the, the feel of uh monument valley um, and there is a story of sorts that's told in the second one. And yeah, when I think about um, Patrick Osborne, or when I, when I think about those Pixar shorts, I can yeah. see a, 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 like a 15, 20 minute kind of short, silent movie um, f- set in, in the Monument Valley universe. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm really curious by it. I, I look forward to seeing it. And it's also reminding me that I need to watch Big Hero 6 again, because I've only seen it once, and I fucking loved it at the time. Indeed. Uh, our One of our final news stories of the week. Um, 21 years after Goldeneye. This seems like you're just putting this news story in here to prove a point to somebody. <laughs> and you're going to be, you're going to finish this by going, ah. But uh, 21 years after GoldenEye N64 came out, it's official, playing as Odd Job was in fact cheating. 
If you played Goldeneye back in the day with your friends, you'll be familiar with the following phrase. Odd job is banned. Odd job, one of the many characters you could select when playing the competitive multiplayer portion of Rare's seminal Nintendo 64 first-person shooter was often banned by players because he was short, short enough to break it, the game. Odd job was so short that Goldeneye's auto-aim would whiz by above his head, which made shooting him incredibly difficult as you'd have to stop moving to use the precise aim to manually aim downwards. Sounds like cheating, right? Well, there's plenty of odd jobs players, monsters I'd like to call them, who'd argue the toss. Odd job is in the game, so it's perfectly fair to play as him, they'd say, before nonchalantly picking Akuma in Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo. Now, 21 years after Goldeneye graced the N64, we finally have an official word that yes, it was cheating, and the ruling has come from the developers themselves. In an oral history of Goldeneye published on Mail Magazine, which I'll be reading extensively quite after this show, um, Carl Hilton, who was the lead environment artist in the game, and Mark Edmonds, who was the gameplay and engine programmer, put the long-running debate to bed. If you picked Odd Job, you were a dirty cheat. We all thought it was kind of cheating when we were playtesting with Odd Job, but it was too much fun to take out, and there was no impetus from any of us to change it, Hilton said. Mark, as a seasoned, battle-hardened Goldeneye competitor, how do you feel about all this? I, in fairness... I never really used Odd Job, and no one that I played Goldeneye with used Odd Job. I feel there was a kind of gentleman's code um, that either that or it was just we were like, if we're going to win, we want to win with, you know, actual skill and not being a, a midget. So, uh, yeah, I <laughs> it was just a random story, and I like when kind of shit like this comes out. Um, did did you ever use Oddjob back in the day, or did you did you um, keep it real think, as bodice? I, I think it's a thing where, like, when I played a lot of N sixty four multiplayer games, um, I, I I was the one in the group who tended to be better at a lot of them. So oh, we there he is. Well, no, like it was more that like at least two people in our group of friends were had a PlayStation and only played N sixty four when they were in my house or one of the other lads' houses. So it wasn't hard to be like among the better players in our little group, but um, I think it was a case of it would be have been it would have been particularly shitty of me to to play as odd job, but certainly he was a guy you'd you'd go to uh, if you were a younger kid playing against older, more experienced people at the game. That's for sure because it's a in some ways, whereas it's it's definitely a cheat character according to developers and according to many people who play it somewhat competitively. Um, it certainly gives a competitive edge to a less skilled player, kind of evens the playing field out a little bit uh, for, for somebody who doesn't know what they're fucking doing yet at it. Um, but yeah, I wasn't somebody who would go to odd job just to be a spiteful bastard. That's for sure. <laughs> um, one last thing, Mark, before we go into the um, the book club this week, I wanted to get your take on a story that's been kind of developing over the last two or three weeks. Um at IGN, the, the story of one Philip Mewson, I believe, is how you pronounce that surname. I think I was going with Mewchen before now, but I've heard a lot of people say Mewson uh, since. So that is what I'm going with now. Um, more has been coming out since we initially talked about the story, I believe, two or three weeks ago. More and more and more comes out. Uh, Jim Sterling did a, an excellent Jimquisition this week, uh, summing the whole thing up if you've missed it, uh, if you have 10 or 12 minutes to spare it's one of the most fascinating kind of inside baseball stories we've had in the the community 
uh, it's possibly the the biggest one since we had that string of like uh, Nick Robinson and uh, Steve Butts and a couple of other people being being outed as harassers. It's probably the first significant um, games news story about the gaming media since then. Uh, and this one is just particularly fucking oh, it just blows my mind every time mark every time i think about it every time i hear a podcast talk about it um i i think where we last left off with the show was um the the kind of the, the plagiarism with boomstick gaming's video was essentially confirmed there was a couple of more suspect articles um the poor fucking editor whose name escaped dan stapleton uh, the reviews editor at IGN came back off vacation to find this whole thing on fire. Um, and they found, he said they found enough evidence to suggest that um, they needed to take down everything he ever wrote and completely purge the site <coughs> of uh, anything he ever did. Uh, re-review all his games gradually. I think the Dead Cells re-review is already up. And presumably they're in the midst of uh, assigning new reviewers to the other games. Um, outside of that, Mewson himself obviously fired, obviously disgraced. Even normally, like when, so when people have left under a cloud of uh, controversy in the past at IGN, they they close ranks, they'll make one public statement about it. That's it. Uh, I've seen people at IGN, both people I follow on Twitter and respect a great deal, the likes of a Brian Altano. Uh, and other people who kind of their tweet was brought into my timeline, the likes of former face of the the, the whole website, Naomi Kyle, uh, did an interview while well, she was a guest on What's Good Gaming, uh, talking about it. Um, and a number of people, like particularly um, and rightfully, like feel betrayed. Um, they're angry about it, and and I think what it comes down to is like unless you write things or are a creative person. Uh, for a living or aspire to do it for a living you don't really understand what what a cardinal sin uh plagiarism is for those people um i think brian altano put it best and it's like why the fuck if you want to do this for a living if you want to cover games you want to write about and talk about games why the fuck would you take shortcuts like that when you've gotten to the job you presumably wanted all along uh mark before i go into how this story has developed in terms of what has been found since uh, your initial thoughts, your takes on this whole sordid affair. Uh, I I was surprised that, um, like, I can understand um, or would expect uh, a review on, you know, uh, your average Joe blog would be caught of, of plagiarizing somewhere else. Um, mm. Whether it's the case of... Uh, a writer who's just kind of getting his chops um, and still just doesn't quite have the, the ability to kind of formulate enough of their own ideas uh, or it's just someone who is chancing their arm but yeah it's it's pretty amazing to see this happening on, on a website like IGN it's not a thing that I think about or when I want to think back to uh game reviewing or games reviewing um and we've seen controversy controversies over the the years uh, and we've seen stuff like the the obvious one being jeff gersman with uh kane lynch 2 and the fallout of that Which, and it is worth noting that in a lot of respects we the 
the industry was forever altered after that. Like, that's how seismic that was at the time for people who weren't around. Yeah. Um, what I enjoy about this is the simple fact that uh, not so much that um, uh, the, the lad's name, whose now name has completely... Uh, Mewson, Philip Mewson. Philip Mewson, yeah. And not so much that he was cool and has been fired and whatever else. Um, it's just like a, a complete lack of self-awareness and doubling mm. down on the idea that yeah. he has so, not done wrong. So, so did you watch the the apology video, the, the now infamous apology video that he took down, but Streisand Effect, it's the internet, people saved it and they put it back up? Uh, I have not watched it, no. Um, so I know so, of the context, and I probably, part of me thinks that I should actually have watched that before we had uh, this discussion. Uh, I bet if I told you he wrote an apology video, uh, please write a script what that apology video would sound like, given what you know of the man. I bet you'd do a pretty damn good job of getting it word for word. He claimed it was an apology video, didn't really apologize, suggested that Kotaku and Jason Schreier in particular were doing it for clicks, um, came off completely like a martyr and then in my favorite part that led to uh, a follow a series of follow-up stories dared kotaku and anybody else to find more instances of his plagiarism um he said things in the video to the effect that oh all reviewers uh, read other reviews uh, to try and figure out if what they're saying is in line with uh the kind of the the consensus to which most game reviewers on Twitter were like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, we say fuck all to each other, unless it's something I, I think uh, Gersman or maybe Patrick Klepek or something said, unless there's like a major technical glitch with a game. And they're like, is this it just in my copy of the, like my review copy of the game? Or is this a thing that's in the game? They tend to try and stay as, as kind of, um, they, they don't want other people's opinions clouding their views or guiding them towards a conclusion. They want to stay completely clean. Um, and then after his dare, this uh, on Reset Era, the the forum that has kind of sprung up in the ashes of NeoGAF, they went to fucking town on this guy. So we'd already heard like around the time that the, the Dead Cells review was kind of confirmed to be plagiarized that people were suspecting his uh, his FIFA review, uh, his Switch port of FIFA review was suspect as well. Um, now it's gotten to the extent where pretty much every written word they could find of his was plagiarized from somewhere else. On several occasions, like he was, plagi he was plagiarizing other YouTubers, he was plagiarizing um, in one uh, spectacular instance, he plagiarized his own colleague from IGN um, he was pl plagiarizing forum posts from Gaff and, and Reset Era. And my favorite of all, I think, is still that his CV was plagiarized from a CV template <laughs> website. <laughs> oh, that's fucking incredible. My, my favorite thing about all of this is um, a bunch of responses I was seeing to Jason Schreier where people were like, oh, why are you kicking a man when he's down? Why are you digging up all this dirt? And Jason's just like, uh, I'm a journalist. I'm doing my job. Yeah. And again, it's just this. Because he fucking did it. It's not like they're making shit up. No. You know? No. Uh, it's, yeah. The, the, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Kind of. Um, 
trying to Philip trying to kind of come off as, as some sort of martyr out of this, and it's like no, you you look you look as as bad as as this situation is, and you have now made the situation worse. Um, you know the. There's no way to come out of this gracefully, but you can at least just fucking put your hands up and say, "Yep, I've done this, and um, I, you know, will pay the consequences for this, and I can strive to improve my uh, my my work and uh, you know my originality." Um, but no, uh, it, it seems just... very much uh, in hindsight that this was a case of a guy who wanted to be thought of as respected within games, wanted to, like, perhaps get to that point where, like, if you're a reviewer of a game for a major website, you're getting free copies of games and stuff like that, and you're getting paid to do it. But he didn't want to do any of the fucking work involved. And I can only sympathize with Dan Stapleton, editor of reviews for IGN. Because, again, as he points out, like, it it's such bloody hard work getting to a position like that in IGN it's kind of just assumed that you're there for the work and you're willing to do the work like no one checks such egregious errors of plagiarism and I I gotta say IGN have handled this situation perfectly um other situations in the past some of the the scandals myself and Jack touched on 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 a past show um, not necessarily handled the best but I think they were really under the gun here to prove that they've they've kind of improved and moved on as a company and everything they've done with with firing him with the statements released with pulling all his content re-reviewing um, all the things uh, Dan Stapleton has been jumping into the reset era thread and explaining exactly what he's doing and the thought processes and how the 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 mechanism of uh, IGN's uh, review structure works like he was pointing out that it's it, you can't just pull everything down off the website because what that does then is if you pull all the content out of the review the way the site's metrics work it makes the scores for all these games tick down to 0.0. So they're trying to find a way around that while rewriting all his fucking reviews. Like it is, uh, it is an unenviable task, especially coming into like, this is right at the start of Q3 where games are coming out left, right and center that need to be reviewed. This is the last fucking thing they need. And, and fair play and my sympathies to the staff of IGN who are having to clean up after this fucker. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, I, I feel this will actually blow over pretty quickly um, because I think most people in the know are just not really given the the accused, you know, the time of day because it's not really worth it. Um, uh-huh. and- except, except the man who I believe Bob Mackey called on Twitter this week, the sheriff of dipshit county, uh, Colin Moriarty, I am who stunned. was trying to get him on his show. I'm stunned by this. Uh, I know, right? Um, every day that guy digs deeper and I'm just, I'm here for it. Um, but yeah, that guy, I think like pretty conclusively will never work in a position of any importance or influence within the industry again. Oh, God. Um, nice. as a kind of, uh, fraternity games journalism has soured on this man. His name is Muck. And you know what? Like at the end of the day, people are saying, oh, why are you kicking a man while he's down? He's guilty as charged. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's no need for sympathy. If you're going to do the crime, you got to do the time. Um. So, yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Uh, let's move on now to the, the welcome return of the Link to the Cast book club, and a very special one for one Mark Robinson here. 
Um, this is the feature where we play a game from the past that either you should play again if you've played before or play for the first time if somehow it's avoided you to this point. Get ready for the giddiest Mark Robinson you ever heard as we talk about The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask is an action-adventure video game developed and published by Nintendo for the Nintendo 64. It was released in 2000 as the sixth main installment in the Legend of Zelda series and was the second using 3D graphics, following The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Majora's Mask is set in Termina, an alternate reality to Hyrule, where the Skull Kid has stolen Majora's Mask, a powerful, ancient artifact. Under its influence, the Skull Kid causes the moon to slowly fall towards Termina, where it will crash after three days. The protagonist Link repeatedly travels back in time to the beginning of the three days to stop the moon from destroying the world. So, Dave Ryan. <laughs> uh, as has been established, I think, on this show on a number of occasions, The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask is my favourite game of all time. Um, I will start by saying that even though this is, if we're going just by the Zelda games, my favourite Zelda game, I am happy to have the argument made at me that Majora's Mask is not necessarily the best Legend of Zelda game. And yeah. there are pros and cons um, that we can discuss, and I will be happy to discuss in great detail. But the key thing that I always have to... I always have as my discussion for what I, I adore about this game is that it, for a start, um, is such a bold, like, after Ocarina of Time, you know, Ocarina of Time, you know, like, the... Which I think, yeah, a lot, like, it, it's your personal favourite, um, but I think if you were to go on the consensus ocarina of time and link to the past are the two sure but like ocarina of time is like the game of you know the childhood of many many people our age um and is you know that taking the legend of zelda and making it a 3d adventure and be just that fucking epic and magical and, and whatever else and to go in such a bold 90 degree turn of a direction with Majora's Mask is in itself a pretty fucking bold thing to do mm. um, and you know me being the, the the emo goth that I can be just the, the eeriness and the weirdness of Majora's Mask it's it's such a weird game um, and to be such a, a mainstream uh, game or as mainstream as the N64 was I guess uh, is it just 
I, I adore that they were that bold of it and how clever they were considering the development time that they had and the fact that they were using pretty much all the assets from Ocarina of Time. Um, as we tend to do, I'll start with you and I'll see and I'll ask you, um, take me back to your first experience with, with Majora's Mask. So, like, I think we've talked a bit before how, like, my my coming to the Legend of Zelda series wasn't exactly, like, as these games were coming out, I came to Link to the Past years after the fact because I never owned a SNES. I came to uh, Link to the Past a couple, I think a couple of years after the fact, like, it's tough to remember now. I remember even when we talked about that game, I had to look back uh, and see if I could figure out when I got it. Um, Majora's Mask is one that I grabbed towards the the tail end of the the N sixty four start of my enjoyment of my GameCube. Um, so I, I wasn't really like I, I remember reading again. I was a big fan of Nintendo Official Magazine at the time, and I remember even though I wasn't closely following the series, I, I remember even as a child going, "Holy, there's another Zelda coming out this quickly! That's insane." Um, and that it like it turned out to be the, this big kind of crazy thing that when I, I looked back at um, kind of what I thought of it at the time, the funnily enough, and I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but my early experiences playing this game, the only game in the series apart from that that rem- that gave me similar feelings is Breath of the Wild. I, I think in a strange way, Breath of the Wild is, is like a, a cousin to Majora's Mask in as much as it, it, it took so many risks with the tried and tested formula of Zelda. Obviously, we, we had made a massive leap from uh, 2D to 3D with Ocarina of Time. But even taken, you could have, Mark, as well, you know, with, with what a cultural phenomenon ocarina of time is you could have just released more ocarina of time and people would have eat that shit up like they would have loved it and they took this game it it, it, it one of the funnily enough one of my favorite things about it is that's one, one of the three games that requires the expansion pack for the n64 uh now we've covered two of them on this show because i don't think we've done donkey kong 64 yet um, i don't know if we have a will in fairness yeah it one of the things that strikes you immediately about it is this series that's look there are dangers and there are some scary monsters and things like that but never before or really since has a game in this series been so consistently sinister and foreboding Uh, and that foreboding comes in a very literal manifestation in the moon yeah in this game I don't think I I have ever been as consistently stressed as I was <laughs> uh, by this game because th- there is Mark, isn't there? There's a sense of impending doom about the place, not just because of the 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 setting and the general eeriness, or the the very obvious moon above the head about to crash into Termina, but as well there's a real sense of like maudlin and helplessness about the characters you encounter throughout this game. Um, that very much, um, it, it, it's unsurprising to me that you enjoy it. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, it's just 
this idea uh, and there, there are loads of little touches to what makes the game have that level of hopelessness and dread there is obviously the moon that is continuously looking at you there is and i think this is the big thing that as you go around each of the kind of four main environments and you see mm. um all the despair you hear the truly like at times bizarre and warped soundtrack which adds so much to the game and you see all these areas that are in their you know different levels of plight because of the way the game uh works on its um on the time frame and that you have three days which i think it adds up to uh an hour and a bit of, of gameplay probably a little bit more um you don't really have a lot of time like unless you get to the point where you're speed running the game by the time that you've uh, beat one of the temples you're not really gonna have a whole lot of time to kind of see that part of the world um, back yeah. to the way it was before before you're yeah. already having to go back to the first day and then if you go back to that environment it's back to the way it was before yeah it doesn't have that feeling because of the time mechanic it doesn't have that feeling that that ocarina of time does of just like stopping and taking a breath and exploring and just this this awe of this big open kind of world it really the the time mechanic harries you along and like i said it adds to that feeling of stress and, and impending doom and the idea that when you perform you, you use your 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 um it's the song of time isn't it to um yeah to to well, reset the, the three-day counter and he, as you said you reset it and a lot of the characters one of the things that like consistently weirded me out about the game is the idea like the perspective idea that when you rewind time to get back to your start of the three-day counter the idea that you remember these characters but a lot of the the kind of uh the characters in the game don't remember you anymore because you've gone back in time and there's this feeling of being like a stranger in an ever more familiar place it's groundhog day but for psychopaths basically yeah um <laughs> and it, oh man you made me lose my point there because I'm, I'm sorry no you're all right you're all right um what were we talking about we talk about the three-day cycle and then um yeah no and like when you think about um the legend of zelda and you think about dungeons and temples mm. you know a lot of those areas you really at times you just kind of need to stand there taking the environment and kind of figure out okay what do i do next where do i need to go next what how do i work this puzzle mechanic mm. and in pretty much all other zelda games you can just you know find a little corner and just kind of you know look at the map and see okay i've been here i've done this and you don't have to worry about time where obviously yeah. with majora's mask you know there is a fucking clock right there in front of you and it's constantly ticking down and as you get closer to the end of the three days the entire world is shaking around you because the moon yeah. is obviously coming in um and it's that constant dread of you know i don't have any more time um and, and because of that as well because it hurries you along and you don't have like an enormity of time to come to a conclusion it's a strange way of making you that much better at the game. Like when you start getting a rhythm and start getting a bit more confident at the game, you feel like an absolute fucking ninja when you're you're oh, yeah. sol you're figuring things out 
with time to spare yeah yeah oh absolutely um it's it's very rewarding when you you know do a temple and then decide to do the temple again and you know just to give yourself that little bit more time to kind of see the world afterwards and back in its mm. uh, original state but just like you know the 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 thing that comes to mind more than anything else is um there are two gorons that are on top of a, a high platform that are frozen in ice um and you know you thaw out the ice you kill a uh, goat and you go back and they're there and then obviously you go back to the first day and then back you go back up and you see they're frozen again and just you see the suffering of the gorons and you know going back and forth between thawing them out and them being happy and then going back and having to deal with with the the, the frozen world it's just it's there's a real kind of like shift of of that just kind of pure oppressive feeling and and the very brief moments of uh, of joy um what i like and and the whole reason i think that they went with this mechanic and and i think we've discussed this about some other games before is that uh developers and artists and people who cr create um a lot of the times they work best when they're under a, a certain amount of pressure now not in the way that you have uh as discussed earlier you know an assassin's creed every year or a, a fifa every year but um clearly here uh nintendo were like okay let's get a game out uh, within i think it was two years between 98 and 2000 with ocarina of time and, and majora's mask and obviously yes they use a lot of the assets from ocarina of time but there was clearly like the intention of let's use this three-day mechanic because we can stretch out the gameplay but not in an artificial way it still feels very natural the game what it is and it doesn't feel padded nothing about majora's mask feels like a padded game because yes there are times when you will get like a third of a way through a dungeon and then you'll have to go back to the first day but it's very easy to get back to that point again when you can you know get back to where you were in that dungeon it's just mm. the stress of not being able to finish the dungeon you know in the first attempt um i guess one of the things i could discuss that is is brought up often that is um kind of seen as a negative on Majora's Mask is the fact that there are only four main dungeons in the game and the fact that two of them aren't actually that great uh, being the, the first two but um, I think that kind of like Breath of the Wild, Majora's Mask is a game that doesn't exist because of the dungeons and the temples, you know um, yeah. they are there because it is a Legend of Zelda game and they serve the purpose for the story about the the oath to, to order in the giants but um just that kind of level of stress um i don't think i don't know i'm not sure i would want to do that past more than four dungeons mm -hmm. and there's also the fact that there are you know majora's mask is is a very kind of uh side story side mission uh, focus game you know there's so much yeah. more going around the world of majora's mask than just the the dungeons yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to hit on before we start heading towards the end is this um, one of the, the classic tropes of a Legend of Zelda game is, you know, uh, as you get further through the game, 
Um, you, you get different tools, different weapons that allow you to traverse different areas or uh, tackle different problems uh, in a way that you couldn't prior. Um, Hookshot, uh, boomerang, all this sort of stuff. Um, one of the ways uh, Majora's Mask attempts to do that same thing of adding a mechanic that allows you to do something that you couldn't before or or change your traversal or interaction with the environment uh, is the masks uh, in this game, which I think plays very well into the, the, the overall themes of this game. Um, what do you think of the this is a very broad question but your your take on the whole the the masks how that whole thing was was pulled off um well we probably have to start with the happy mask salesman who is about as creepy a npc as you'll ever see and this is in a game full of of creepy things uh-huh um i love the the incorporation of the the masks um part of that is that because Link only uh, is played as a child through this game, mm-hmm. so you know one of the the common features about uh, like Ocarina of Time is that there are certain weapons that he can only use as a child, certain weapons he can only use as an adult, uh, and they find a way around this with the masks. Um, now a lot of them are useless, but um, they all have their own kind of backstory, and you know a lot of them you have to do the the side missions to uh, you know get them. What I love about them is the fact that the way that they are introduced, like the three main masks that you use, all have this real tragic backstory to them, or they're just really unnerving in how you put them on. Like, mm. every time you put on one of the transformation masks, you know, Link looks out to the sky and screams what sounds like a, a howling pain before being transformed into a, a Zora or a Goron or a Deku scrub. And uh, it just, it again, it's this constant, uh, just unnerving, tense feeling. Um, and it's... But it's used for the purpose of giving you these different abilities when you're these different characters, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a, a great feature. And, um, you know, some of the masks obviously don't really serve much of a purpose. Um, and then there are masks that aren't masks, like the postman's hat. But, you know, I still like the feature of them. Uh, I, yeah. I think it's one of the things worth noting as well that the, the later 3DS port of the game fixed was just uh, speeding up that whole process of, of sure, switching sure. masks. Um, kind of, in, it, funnily enough, it, it reminds me very much of the um, when they came back to revisit Wind Waker and do the HD port for Wii U, they were just like, oh, fucking fast travel. <laughs> you know, it was just like, it's just this thing to make the gameplay a little bit smoother that wasn't something we necessarily thought about in, in the late 90s uh, as much. Um, but yeah, absolutely um, worth noting there. Uh, anything else you want to you want to hit upon here? Like, I don't want to cut you short on your, your fave game, but uh, w- what other points do you want to hit on before we wrap this up? Um, what else is there? I, I guess... Um... What did you think of the the 3DS remake, and more specifically, what did you think of the the Moon's remake, the remodeling? Because it's mm. fucking terrifying for me. Yeah, yeah, it it is fucking terrifying. I I have both the Ocarina and Majora's Mask remakes. 
and like i like them and i I like what they did and clearly like work was put in um as i said before the majora's mask getting the the mask switching down to a bit more of a a smoother hassle-free process is is good and in ocarina of time i think the one thing they fixed that everyone was really happy about was that water temple that does not warrant discussion on this fine program uh, any more than needs be uh, but at the same time, I think, and maybe it's a rose-colored glasses sort of thing, Mark, but I think there's something about playing that game still on the N64 um, that feels a bit more special. Sure. No, I, I, I can, I can um, agree with that. Uh, they certainly, though, like, as you said, they, they certainly did a, a pretty damn good job of... It, it, that polygonal era of 3D gaming is... Oh, it's a fucking rough thing to go in and try and smarten up uh, to modern standards. But as good a job as you can do is what was done with uh, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, I think, on 3DS. Yeah, I think... Um, um, yeah, I, I haven't played the the 3DS version. I, th- I played for it once or twice, but definitely kind of like the Ocarina of Time version and, and like the Wind Waker HD remake. Um, a, a good job of kind of streamlining certain features, uh, making the save points with the owls make a little bit more sense, um, and just being more kind of functional with being able to see the map uh, on the bottom screen at all times. Um, this isn't quite an elevator pitch yet, but one of the things that I think makes, for me, makes Majora's Mask um, even more memorable than Ocarina of Time is that for me personally it has a lot more just memorable moments than ocarina of time not mm-hmm. that ocarina of time doesn't have it its moments because obviously it does but i think back to um times where uh, you have the uh, the captain um the the giant uh, skeleton um and you kind of salute him before he falls apart I think back to the first time you get to the top of Stone Tower and you turn it, um, you have to turn it upside down to do like the second half of the Stone Tower Temple. Yeah, uh, it's you know um, talking to the, the the doing the the oath of, of order and, and listening to that song. Um, the the Deku Scrub Princess when she's throwing a fit and and jumps on her dad. Um, it just yeah, I have I've so many moments, and it's actually genuinely it's a game I've played less than Ocarina of Time. Um, there's it's one of those games that it's kind of like you a, need to be in a particular mood. I think it's kind of like a difficult Radiohead album, you know. Like mm. when you when you get through it, you realize there's a reason that this is what it is. But you're not always going to go to it first before say a Benz or in Rainbows. Yeah, um, um, it's it's the the kid a of the Legend of Zelda games. Here's a question I have for you before you 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 do that elevator pitch, um, and that is, I, I consider one of the things that when I think about Majora's Mask that I think is so important um, to the the franchise that that you and I love so dearly of Legend of Zelda is that I think it was very important that this game succeeded on a, on a critical level because it was only really the second time. Uh, in the franchise's history thus far, this being the sixth game, where they really took a risk on changing up fundamentally what a Legend of Zelda game plays like. I I think they were... Zelda 2 is the real red-headed 
stepchild, the adventure of Link, uh, of the the whole kind of the official Zelda games. Like, let's not talk about the CDI games. <laughs> but I think if you had had, like, after Adventure of Link, they went right back to like exactly what kind of adventure game they should have been making with Link to the Past and Link's Awakening, Ocarina of Time. I think it might be fair to say, Mark, if Majora's Mask hadn't been the critical darling it was with, with something like 95% on, on Metacritic to this day, um, we might have seen a different timeline in which Zelda games just remained formulaic because it was the safe thing to do, um, with the exception of technological leaps forward, such as Ocarina of Time. I think even when you get... so, the, if I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the release years of all Zelda games. So Oracle of Seasons and Oracle of Ages come out next, but I'm looking at 2002. I don't think something as completely out of left field as Wind Waker happens without Majora's Mask. I definitely don't think we get as far as something as completely different as Breath of the Wild in 2017 without Majora's Mask. Um, w- would you go along with that theory that it is a, it was a very important creative moment for both the franchise and maybe even uh, Nintendo more broadly speaking taking I, taking a real risk with a beloved franchise? I kind of disagree with you. Um Oh, here he is. No. Well, I think that Wind Waker happens just because once you've gone, like, as dark as you do with Majora's Mask, you you have to go in another direction. You can't do that again. Um, And I I think Wind Waker is a reaction because of that. Um, I do agree with you that, like, Breath of the Wild is by far the most kind of bold and adventurous and and biggest kind of step out of the comfort zone of a Zelda game since Majora's Mask. Mm. But you look over most of those main the main games of that series and they've all been and even Wind Waker to a degree pretty uh, pretty kind of similar along the same lines of a formula. I will do you know I'll give um Link Between Worlds was uh, an attempt to kind of uh, look between. at the look, look at the formula and see what we can do. No, the be- idea of tackling the the temples in a variety of orders and and some of the things they did with that game were a very clever twist on what we'd come to expect. Yeah, I it's it's still very much linked to the past with a paint mm. job and a slight tweak of the mechanics. Um, but definitely, if you look at between Wind Waker, Twilight, definitely fucking Twilight Princess. Uh, Skyward Sword, you know, those games all kind of to a degree followed the, the same formula. And yeah. I don't I, think I, it was I, until Breath of the Wild that we really saw. I, uh, sorry, yeah. Yep, yep. Just to uh, say, I, Breath of the Wild, a revamp of the mechanics. Yeah, I often think that that kind of uh, fallow period creatively, um, you might say, in between. Um, Breath of the Wild going back to, to Wind Waker. I, I often credit that as being more of a reaction to Wind Waker than anything else because you remember this was one of the, the first thing the, the first times I remember the uh, the man babies going crazy about, you know, Toon Link not being their Link and what the hell is this cartoony adventure going. So a lot of those, like especially the home console Zelda games were a real attempt at, oh we're doing it serious now. Um, yeah. until we got to, to Breath of the Wild. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely felt like... So I like Twilight Princess, but I can definitely see at times it's it's very much trying a bit too hard to be dark, um, yeah. and it, it kind of falls on its face in a few points. Mm. So I'll, I guess I'll, I'll do the elevator pitch here. Um, yeah. 
Majora's Mask is not perfect. Um, I do see why some people don't like it. Um, it's not just a ROM hack. It is its own game. It's not Zelda Gaiden. It's not Zelda Gaiden. <laughs> um, it's this wonderfully unique, fresh take on um, uh, the, the Zelda series. It's still one of the weirdest fucking things I've, I've ever played. It's still one of the most interesting video game experiences I've ever had. I, I think to this day there are very few games that match its tone um, in just times of sheer dread and uh, its tension and its just general levels of despair. Um, but it still has those moments of Zelda that shines through where uh, it's it's joyous and epic and grand and, and fairy tale like um it's not an easy game to get into uh certainly as our kind of levels of patience with video games was probably shortened because we just don't have the time to play them mm. you know as freely as we'd like to so yeah it's the kind of game that if you'd go into for the first time at this point probably would want to use a guide but i think it's very rewarding from beginning to end of um of a very bold direction that Nintendo took uh, in the late 90s and I think it's a game that still holds up and stands uh, the test of time to this day very good that is finally finally on the program Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask Mark there's one last bit of business uh, to attend to and that is for me to pick my game for episode 121 of Link to the Cast I'm going to keep us in the 90s bring it back a little uh, and go to the year 1997 and I, I think what the theme of this discussion will be were exactly what the impressions of an 8 year old Dave Ryan were with no context for the genre nor the culture to sit down and play a game like Mystical Ninja starring Goemon <laughs> Do you know, so, my, my friend at work actually plopped out in front of me today a Super Nintendo copy of uh, Mystical Ninja. Um, oh my god. Wow. What was that? What, Legend of the Mystical Ninja, wasn't it? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this boy. is, for those of you who haven't played, this is a fucking weird game. Um, you should really try and like watch a long play or play the fucking game. Um, we're going to talk about it next week. I rented this thing on a fucking whim no idea what it was um and yeah i'll give my impressions uh from the time uh next week on the program anyway that's going to do it for episode 120 of link to the cast this podcast is available on soundcloud itunes and most podcasting platforms just search for link to the cast subscribe rate review it all helps the website is linked to the cast.eu where you can get our show notes get direct links to the podcast all that good jazz if you want to get in touch the email address is linked to the cast at gmail.com uh, social media is probably the best way to keep up to date with what we're doing um, content as a post all that good jazz uh, facebook.com forward slash link to the cast and at link to the cast on twitter individually on twitter I am now at the day to Dave and Mark is at lithium project uh, if games aren't your only interest we may have the podcast for you 
we also have the Grap Up, which is the Once Every Few Months Pro Wrestling Podcast, one of which I think might be brewing sometime soon, Mark, with the uh, the the wake of SummerSlam and the impending May Young Classic. We may dust off the grapply microphones again and talk about that. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm good for that. We've also got the Popcorn Social, which is a monthly deep dive into the latest cinema offerings with myself and the Roman Reigns of audio that is Jack Lazell. Um, we have one banked from last month that's that's already up there on the, the website in this podcast stream. Um, and I think we're looking at recording one possibly next week, but uh, I will keep you all posted on that. These podcasts plus the weekly Link to the Cast flagship broadcast are all available in the one podcast feed. So just subscribe to Link to the Cast on your favorite podcast platform and all of them will be right there for you. And of course, if there are any episodes you want to go back to, just go onto our website, linktothecast.eu or go into the search engine in your podcast, whatever way you uh, is easier for you and just search and see if the game you love has already been covered by us because at this point 120 episodes deep 120 episodes deep it probably has for a link to the cast for this week i have been dave ryan the man on the line mark robinson good to have you back buddy back in the saddle we'll see you all next week